recent Ivy Ideas Night in New York City, the founder and CEO of Cheddar, John Steinberg, spoke to members about how to develop a culture of innovation in your team, his own personal journey as an entrepreneur, and the Strayer University Digital Entrepreneurship MBA program with Cheddar. This conversation with Ivy founder Barry Merrick will provide valuable information for those interested in the business world, the tech space, and entrepreneurs alike. Enjoy. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for being here. It's good to be here. All right. How was your day today? Uh, I went to Philadelphia to meet with Comcast because um, they're one of our investors and one of our partners, and they have this this new cable box called the X. It's not that new, and you can say into the remote cheddar, and we come right up on that now. None of you live in Comcast territories, do you? Does anyone have, you, you in the back? Were you like in New Jersey or something like that? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Do you have the X1 box? Sixty percent of people they'll 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 give it to you. I don't think it costs that much more. How many of you know Cheddar? Do you know? Do you all know Cheddar? Do any of you know Cheddar? Well, everybody knows it now. Yeah, everyone knows it now, right? So when you say Cheddar to the remote, it, it either it, launches your channel or you order Cheddar cheese from Amazon. No, it just launches. <laughs> Actually, what's amazing is in Google now, if you search for Cheddar, we've we've managed to totally push the cheese down in the ranks. Uh, we, we've we've, we've out-SEO'd the actual dairy product. Of all the cheeses you could have beaten, cheddar is like a real I tough always, competitor. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It also means money. You know cheddar means money, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, your career highlights right, are very impressive, but I want to rewind the clock back a little bit. Uh, when you were growing up and looking ahead, um, how were you thinking about what you wanted to do in the world? What was your journey like that it led you to places like Google and BuzzFeed and eventually Cheddar? So we moved to New York when I was, I was telling you this, I, we moved to New York when I was eight or nine years old uh, and I was bad at sports. And I went to this school uh, on the Upper West Side called Trinity and I had a very bad experience there. Um, I was picked last, they, they, every day during lunch they played this game on the roof, this, this like version of football uh, and I was picked last. And uh, I went home every day and I cried. Uh, I, I'm actually not joking. Uh, but it's okay. If you want to laugh at the fact that me as a little eight-year-old boy was crying, <laughs> you guys are that sick that you want to laugh about that. Uh, and then personal computers started really coming out, right? And I got an Apple IIc. And it was, it was like the most amazing thing that I, I had ever seen. And then shortly afterwards, there started to be these dial-up bulletin board systems in, um, they were, you dialed in locally with like modems and stuff like that. It's so funny, so many of you in this room never had a modem, which is kind of amazing. And I dialed, this is before America Online, I dialed into these things and I started uploading files and creating message boards and getting into all this stuff. And I just thought to myself, I, I, just, I just knew it was gonna be huge. I just, I just knew it was amazing, I loved it. And my parents, to their credit, they like leaned into it. And they were on board with it and they let me do all this stuff. Um, and so I fell in love with it right away. I, I always loved computers. Yeah, amazing. And then, uh, so you got into, the, into it at this young age and when you were charting your course in terms of like actually thinking, okay, I wanna be an innovator, like I wanna actually do this for a living and so forth, like what was kind of your mindset and what was your vision back then in terms of like what you wanted to achieve? Well, the interesting thing about the internet is, and it's funny, like, you know, I do a lot of interviews and stuff. I haven't really talked about this, but because it just doesn't come up that much is everybody in this room takes it for granted that the internet is just a part of, of the fabric of their lives. Everyone here uses the internet. In the late 80s and early 90s, there were people that liked the internet and there were people that didn't like and didn't use the internet. It, 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 was, it's, it was like people who like Chinese food. Some people like Chinese food, some people don't eat Chinese food, right? Like some people like movies, like, it's like if you think of all things in modern culture, some people here like, like cycling, some people don't like cycling, right? Like that's what the internet was like and I just really liked it, right? Um, and I followed it very closely, and I knew that I wanted to do it. And then, you know, when I went to Princeton, it was all I wanted to study. And I got and I got to meet, you know, Nicholas Negroponte and Sherry Turkle, and I had this professor Paul Starr, and I got to, um, you know, write my thesis on it and be super involved and super into it. And then I just sort of stuck with that, and that was good for a while. And then the dot com bubble exploded. And then everybody was like, oh, you know what? The internet's bullshit. Like, the, the, this is never going to be a thing now. Like, it's all, it's, it, was, we, it was all a joke, right? And so it was hard to stick with it during that period of time. Um, 
and I mostly did with some, you know, amblings on and off paths. Um, but I always liked it. From the minute I saw it, I liked it. Got it. So it was something you were passionate about. You saw its potential even when people thought maybe it was bullshit, but you right. thought, no, this, this is going to really change things. Um, and then you've been intricately involved. So before diving into... I'll tell you, and I'll tell you one other thing which is kind of interesting is that there, there have been moments where I've seen things where I felt the same way. And one of them I was totally wrong on. I'll tell you the one I think that I'm right on. The first time I saw a Segway and I read about a Segway, I was like, well, this is the next internet. Everyone's going to have a Segway. Like, and then I went and I tried to start a business actually where I went to buildings in Manhattan that had small courtyards and I wanted to be the Segway parking king of New York City. That was one of my ideas. I was like, if I get in early on this, I'll own all the Segway parking real estate and everyone's going to have a Segway. My wife to this day still talked. I tell her, I tell her something's going to be huge. She's like, well, maybe it'll be like the Segway where you thought it was. <laughs> and, and that didn't work out. Okay, the, the next one that I did think about though, and we've done this because we're going to do a lot of esports programming now. I went to the Activision Blizzard Arena. How many of you have ever watched competitive video games? Overwatch? How many of you watch Ninja play Fortnite, right? It's amazing. How many, raise your hand if you've never watched anyone play video games or competitive video games. It's early. You guys got to check this out. And I went to this arena and the screen was giant and the guys were up front. And right now it actually is all guys, unfortunately. Um, and they were all playing these games and it was fast and the lights were flashing and the screen was giant. And I was like, oh my God, this is the internet. This is going to destroy sports. No one's ever going to want to watch baseball if you can watch this. And then I went to the Barclay Center for the Overwatch finals and there was... I don't know, Daniel, what was it? Was there 20,000 people? It was, how, how big is the bar? How many people can the Barclay Center fit? How many? 15? 55. 55,000? No, no. 15 or 20, I don't know. It was packed and the people were screaming and I felt like, well, that's going to that's gonna be a big thing. So we're going to, all our sports news coverage is going to be, um, oh, thank you so much, is going to be, uh, is going to be esports coverage. Is there a way to invest in that? Yeah, you can, and all the stocks are doing pretty well. You can invest in Activision, you can invest in Logitech, Turtle Beach is a small headset one. None of these are stock recommendations, I'm just rattling off names. Uh, take Two, and you know, Take Two has the NBA League, the NBA 2K League. Um, Activision has the Call of Duty League, the Le and then um, I guess Riot has the League of Legends League. And then Fortnite, you can invest in Fortnite right now. Fortnite's a phenomenon, I'll tell you, I've never seen anything like it. All right. Amazing. Um, so let's zoom out before we dive back in. What is innovation to you? When you think of that word and your journey as well, like if you had to distill it, what is at the heart of innovation? I think at the heart of innovation is curiosity. And I think, I think, that I really do think that. And I think that at the heart of it is, are you a person who sees new things and is threatened by new things and wants to just shit talk them until they go away, which is what large companies do about new things because every new thing becomes uh, a threat to the incumbency? Or do you see it and get excited and say, how do I be part of this? How do I get to embrace this? Where, where's the place for me in it? And if you love that and you love change um, and you're curious and you love seeing new things, then, um, then, then basically innovation is what comes after curiosity. You know, and I'll, I'll give you, you know, I mean, to me there is, there are more things that I find interesting than not interesting. And, you know, on this video game stuff, you know, when Fortnite was getting really big, I was like, I got to play Fortnite. Like, I got to understand it. Even if I'm the worst Fortnite player in the world, I got to play Fortnite, right? And a lot of people are like, Fortnite's stupid. It's a waste of time. It's bad for kids, blah, blah, blah. Because... It's not that easy to play Fortnite. You got to download it. I mean, now that it's on, on iPhone, it's easier, but you got to download it. It's a big app, and then you got to install it, and you need a really good computer, and you got to figure this out. And most people would rather just lay face down on the couch, right? So, um, <laughs> if you know, do you choose to try it? You know, um, you know, my son got really into like wakeboarding, right? And again, I, I prefaced it with me not being athletic, but my wife's like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're going to go out. We're going to go try doing wakeboarding. And, you know, to me, it's like, I got to try it. I want to try to wakeboard. I want to see if I can do it. I want to see what it's like. What does it feel like? How does it work? Um, and I think that's one of the healthiest feelings to have in life. And I think if you don't feel like that, you know, you know, really, what's the point of even, what's the point of getting up in the morning, right? right? 
I love how you put it as curiosity being at the heart of it. And I yeah. think most of us, like we all like the idea of something new and like exciting and so forth, but then the reality of creating something new and exciting actually has. Well, that's the second piece, but let's talk one more bit about curiosity. I used to give this example in speeches. I don't anymore, but it's a good thing. Somebody wrote this up in a Business Week article about Jeff Bezos. And Bezos goes to this small uh, diner or what have you with a reporter. And the menu has all of these regular items. And one of the items is breakfast octopus. Okay? And um, Jeff Bezos orders the breakfast octopus. He could have had eggs. He could, maybe I'm getting the story half wrong, but I think I'm getting it half right. Um, he could have had eggs, he could have had French toast, he could have had this, he could have had that, and then there's breakfast octopus. And he, the reporter said, well, why did you order that? He said, I must have the breakfast octopus. I must have the breakfast octopus. And that's why Jeff Bezos is where Jeff Bezos is. Okay, so now you have the curiosity, what do you do? All right, well, it's what I tell all of our students all the time in our Strayer program. Your idea is worth nothing. Your idea is just, it's just worth nothing. Everybody in this room has an idea. Everybody had the idea for cheddar. Everybody had the idea for everything. But who decides one foot after the other, one foot after the other, incremental progress every day, I'm going to work on this. And most people don't do that. And so, you know, when people come to me with their business ideas, my new answer to them is, I don't really know if your idea is any good. And to be honest, I don't really care if your idea is any good. I would sooner, if somebody came to me with, a really stupid idea, but they were like, I'm gonna work on this every day, I'm gonna make incremental progress. If somebody came to me and said, like my business, I like pick like a bad Shark Tank idea, like, you know, my idea is uh, I'm gonna make handheld waffles. I'm gonna make a thing, I'm gonna be the best person at handheld waffles and I'm gonna wrap different kinds of sausages and waffles and that's gonna be my business, right? And then another person comes to you and their idea is that they're gonna like, they're gonna do a better version of SpaceX or they're gonna compete against Tesla, right? And they're gonna make a better electric car. The waffle person, they can make that a multi-million dollar business. Just by sheer force of will, you can make anything into a multi-million dollar business. I don't, there are probably certain businesses that have a limited market size. There's only so many people that want something. But any idea, you know, you can make into a mom and pop operation, right? Um, like take your business, like it's an enormous grind. You got to do these events nonstop. Every one of them, it's people in hundred room chunks, right? You know, can your business be a billion dollar business? I don't know. And who really cares, right? Can it be a business that's tens of millions of dollars with enormous profit margins? Of course. And you're on the road to doing that. So that's what people really miss on this stuff is that their ideas are worth nothing. Got it. So to deconstruct what you're saying, so... Curiosity is something, you know, we all have good ideas, but the ones that, like the idea itself is not nearly as important as the person persistently pursuing it. Yes, um, and making incremental progress. So let's say that's like one of the axioms, so you gotta just like, it's the per, like that conviction and cons persistently going right. after something. And I'm not, no, and I'm not, yeah. and I'm, but I'm not giving you like Gary V, like you yeah. got a hustle and grind type stuff. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is that the idea is such a small percentage right. of the thing, right? And that incremental progress and execution, taking nothing and making it a very small business and then from a very small to a slightly less small. And then at a certain point, you hit a ceiling or not, but you've created something that is of greater value than zero. Right, absolutely. So part of it is this persistence. That's a part of the formula that's core. The next item in the formula when it comes to innovation is that there's some very serious limits to what you can do by yourself. So somewhat, you've got to convince others to believe in you, right? right. To either work with you on the right. idea as a co-founder or employee. You need potentially investors if you don't have your own capital to build this. So you've got to kind of build this team around you. You've got to have people believe. Right. Uh, because again, unless you're like the mad scientist in a lab by yourself inventing something, uh, it really takes a team to get there. So could you talk a little bit about that aspect of innovation? So you've got your idea and you're crazy enough to be persistently following that every day. Yes. Then how do you approach the building of a team to really kind of punch well, out the, your own well, way? Well, the first part of that is now what is the next thing that you need to do? So you have the idea and now the next thing is you have to have to decide what the first little peak 
is, right? The top of the mountain is too high. What's the first peak? So for us, and our situation was a little different. By the way, nobody should start a company from scratch. Everybody needs to be part of somebody else's startup, Everybody, somebody else's entrepreneurial thing. I go to BuzzFeed. I'm the 15th employee. I've saved up a little money from working. I, I didn't inherit any money, you know. Um, and uh, I did that. I worked for Jonah. I worked for the BuzzFeed team. For I was part of a team. And then I had credibility. And then so I had checks waiting for me. That's the other thing is no one raises money based on how great their idea is. That doesn't exist. You've got one of two options. Either you bootstrap it to profitability or you're part of building somebody else's business and you've got enough credibility that you get a check. I had enough credibility I got a check. Peter Gorenstein, even before we got the check, wanted to leave Yahoo Finance and do this with me. We were fixed up on a blind date. We hit it off. We spent time together. We decided, okay, we're going to go into this together. That was high risk because we didn't know each other very well. Luck came to play. We got along very well. It worked out. Now we're sitting in a WeWork, and we've got $3 million in the bank. Fuck, what do you do now, right? No one tells you what to do. Okay, well, we got to go buy some Macs. We go and we buy the Macs, right? Okay, what do we do next? Well, before we're going to build a cable network, we probably need to make two to three minutes of video creating a sizzle of what it's going to look like. Okay, well, let's try to hire some freelance people. Let's post some ads. Let's try to meet some people who can come and can work this. And, you know, it's a little bit like, um, what's the movie where they all go on that bachelor trip? Hangover. Hangover. And then the wolf pack had three wolves, and there were three wolves in the wolf pack, right? Um, and then we shoot the video, and it's terrible. And that's the other thing. When I took this idea to CNBC, and I wanted them to be my partner in it, and they decided not to do it, one of the senior executives said to me, you know, John, how are you going to do this on your own without us? And I said, one foot in front of the other. And then he said to me, you know, when you launch this, it has to be really great day one. I said, oh, no, no. It's going to be fucking horrible day one. <laughs> uh, because how, how can it not be? So then we did a few minutes. We made a few minutes. It was horrible. I showed it to the first investor. I could see on, on um, one of my investors, Satya, I was in San Francisco. I showed him the sizzle. And I, I, the look on his face was he wanted to tell me how horrible it was. And he didn't. And I've talked to him about this since. Like, he didn't know what to say. He said, I knew you'd make it better. But, yeah, it was horrible. So now we got three horrible minutes. And the next thing is, well, let's see if we can do an hour live. We go to the New York Stock Exchange, who, who bought into the vision right away, again, based on the credibility of what we had done before. We run out of content after 40 minutes, and the audio doesn't work, right? But the nice part about it was we could only go up from there, right? Like, it wasn't going to get any worse. And then we came back the next day, and it was slightly better. And now there's maybe there's four or five people at the company. We have a third-party contractor that's helping us do some of this stuff. And I remember coming home on, like, the Wednesday or Thursday and turning to my wife and saying, Jill, we have to do an hour. We can never go backwards. So that means we got to do an hour a day every weekday from now till the end of time. And then we basically have to go from an hour to two hours to three hours. And we only have four employees in the company. And what am I going to do? Do I have to do this forever now? Like, what if I can't be there at 9 o'clock in the morning? Like, who's going who's to do it? There's only four people at the company. Two of them are operating the computers. Peter is the one with me on camera because there's nobody else at the company. Like, I didn't quite think this all through, right? But we hired Kristen, and Kristen became an anchor, and we did that. And as we launched this eSports coverage, you know, we, were, we did our all-hands um, last week. And one of the people said, okay, what's the vision of the eSports stuff? We, we know we're going to start doing one or two hours, but, like, what's the plan? How does it get to be more? And I'm like, the way we do things around here is we don't actually know. We just know that it has to get better and better and better, and it has, the economics have to make sense. Um, and that's just how we do things. Right. Right? So as the entrepreneur, it's, you know, because you have the idea and you have the persistence, so you're going for it anyway. But for those who join you, yes. you know, when they look at something that's, well, this doesn't work very good, or this, oh, we're, like, it can often feel like we're, we're failing. It's not working as it's supposed to be. But it's at the very heart of it. What you said is, like, incrementally making it better. So when, as a leader, yeah. leading a team that's innovating something, how do you manage that? Like, what do you tell your team, or how do you get them into that 
mindset of an owner, of an entrepreneur, to yeah. be comfortable with that change and the imperfections until you get there? Well, everybody there has made a choice that they want to be part of building something and they want more discretion and they want a harder lifestyle because they want the creative rewards. And all of these people are artists to some extent. And if they wanted an easier life and they wanted to have an elaborate hobby, they'd work at Procter & Gamble. And there's nothing wrong with that. I really believe that. I, and I'm not just saying that. I think that what I tell the people who work with us is you operate in a field of ambiguity. You get to be involved in creating it. Um, it is like the Shakespeare line, like, you know, or the St. Crispin's Day speech, you know, the fewer, the fewer, the greater share of the glory. And, um, you know, uh, that, that is the reward for all that get to be part of it. You know, I had, a, I had a, um, a colleague of ours who I like a lot who wanted to leave. He wanted to quit today, go to, go to another company. And he said to me, you know, it's interesting. What you always said is true. I got, I got all these job offers because I, I was part of building Cheddar. And all of these media companies came and they wanted to hire me because they knew that I was part of doing this, right? And so the rewards are so many for that kind of stuff, if it's successful, um, that people tolerate a lot, I think. And how many are you at Cheddar now? 160. 160, and then at BuzzFeed, you went from 15 to 500 while That's you right. were there. That's right, yeah. Right. So how does the dynamic change? So you've walked us through like the very scrappy first days, yes. right? Where it's so few people anyway, and it's obviously a tight-knit team. Everything is visible, everyone knows everything. But as you get more and more people involved, it becomes like there's a, like a force that's like almost trying to get you to be more structured, more corporate, yes. so people wanna know what's the process. Yes. It becomes harder. And for many people who work in very large companies, like they're not even, like they haven't been a startup for decades sometimes. Yes. So just curious if you could like walk us through the different phases. So you outlined the initial phase, yeah. but as a company scales, how do you maintain whether it's from hiring to also keeping people motivated and separating very innovative teams versus teams that just like maybe just operationally do the same thing over and over again. How have you managed those transitions? So, well, the, the inherent challenge in this is that you have to build structure and you have to build a process. And competent, competent people can understand the need for that, and they are able to differentiate between, and we can try to explain the difference between bureaucracy and structure. But let me tell you what the real interesting problem with this is, is that people that are good and experienced at management cannot do this. And the reason for that is, is they become too de-skilled, they're used to large support systems, they're used to doing far less work, and they're by their nature not people that invent stuff. So the challenge becomes this. The people that were with us when we were small are good at inventing and creating and doing this stuff. And so they are the people that are going to be the best people to do this stuff. So Daniel is here. So Daniel joined the company how long ago? Okay, so Daniel's been at the company since it was six months old. He's done all of our distribution deals. Sling, Hulu, YouTube TV, Fubo, Philo, DirecTV Now, Twitch. I mean, the, the list is astronomical, okay? No one else could do that. No one else could do it at the speed that he did it. He did it as an entrepreneur. He had never been given that much leash to do it, just like I had never been given that much leash to start a whole company. If we had brought in an executive from Viacom or... NBC Universal, they couldn't have done it because their vision of what the process would have been would have been, I don't even know what it would have been because I'm not from one of those companies either. But I can tell you one thing, it would have been a fuck ton slower, right? And it wouldn't have happened, okay? And, but here's the problem, and I won't, I won't apply this directly to Daniel because I don't want him to be embarrassed. But like, so now you've got a person who's doing something that no normal person can do by virtue of the fact that they don't know any better and they didn't know how high the sky could be, so they just kept flying, right? These people don't know how to manage people. They don't know how to manage people. When I look at our glass door reviews and we get criticism from employees, it's the management here is bad. 
not that the management here does inappropriate things or is offensive or is um, has bad behavior, because we have zero tolerance for that, and we they're, they're, it's easy to put systems in place around that stuff, right? But they don't know how to structure a team. They don't know how to do hiring and firing. They don't know how to do reorgs. They don't know how to do all these things because the people that know how to do that stuff don't know how to do anything but that stuff, right? So that is the, that's the challenge with this. And so the solution to it is that we bring in management training. Those of us that have the experience doing it do our best while still creating innovation to try to teach that stuff as well. But ultimately, that's where we fall down. The irony of it is basically every company falls down on that because I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any company in the United States, any company in the world where people are like, oh, you know what? My manager is a great manager. Our company is so well operated. This place is free of politics and bureaucracy, and nothing is run better than my company. <laughs> no, said no one. You know, just like no child feels like their parents are great parents, right? So to me, if if we are operated where our management is a little bit off, but our creativity and innovation and decency is unbelievably high, and I want to be really clear here, there is no room. And, you know, it's funny, being a young media company where we don't have any of this versus an old media company that are beyond toxic now with the sexism and the harassment, we have no tolerance for that. I do have tolerance for people misorganizing their team, potentially having two people that each think they're supposed to be doing the other thing and don't quite know how the task is done. And then we see the breakage and we try to fix it. I'd rather suffer that than, you know, the staleness of like, we can't get anything done here. Got it. Um, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot in there, uh, what you just said. Uh, and clearly, you know, it, it is a challenge, but somehow companies do graduate to these like higher and higher levels. And sometimes what becomes difficult is, well, now it, there is a good structure, there's institutional knowledge and everything, but keeping that sense of innovation alive is tough. So. Yeah. Before we open it up to the audience, I just like so the title of the event tonight was, you know, how to develop a cultural of innovation yeah. in your team. So if you had to distill it to like a couple of points, like what would you advise people here, whether they're in small teams, big teams, or starting a company, what would be your guidelines to them to like well, create that culture of innovation? The so first thing is people have to be free of the fear and anxiety. It's kind of interesting that I opened up with a story of my youth when I was sad and insecure and felt you know, emotional pain. If people are in a point where they're worried about, am I gonna be fired? Is my boss mad at me? All these types of things, they can't be creative, they can't be innovative. They're wasting a lot of their mind. That's why the candor and transparency is so important. If you're doing a bad job here, we're gonna tell you what you're doing good, we're gonna tell you what you're doing bad. You're, you never need to be left wondering where you stand, you know? If you're on the verge of being fired, we're gonna tell you that, and then we're gonna fire you. But you're never gonna be in this world of like, devoting your intellectual energy to fear as opposed to creativity. So would you, what would you call that, transparency or I, you communication? Know, the the like term what? that Kim Scott uses, who, who is a woman that uh, I, I had passing business work with at, at Google, I think she calls it radical, uh, radical transparency, I think is what she uses, and I think that, you know, I do give that feedback to our managers a lot. The sugarcoating of stuff is, you know, I'm like, he, he, you know, I'll, I'll have somebody come in and, you know, Bob will say to me, yeah, I told Jim or Sally, I told Sally um, that, you know, she could be doing a better job on X, Y, and Z. I'm like, okay, but when you came to me earlier, you told me the problem is that um, she doesn't do daily updates to our partners. And if she, if she continues to fail to do that, she has to leave because it's so important that we need to get that done. Did you tell her that? Well, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't quite say it like that. And I'm like, no, you, you got to say it because if you don't say that, people don't believe anything. If, if, you don't, if you don't give them the stiffest of medicine in the kindest, most decent way, then they don't believe anything. So I think the radical transparency movement is, is probably right. Okay, awesome. So... Radical transparency, what else would you say is a key ingredient? The key, other key ingredient is you do your day job, but there's 24 hours in a day, right? And if you get your day job done, we expect here people to go above and beyond 
And this is a place where you can invent something. And again, your ideas are worthless. We, the, the whole we, Cheddar should do an eSports news show. That idea had been, people have been saying that for a year. And then finally I said, okay, great fucking insight. We should do an eSports show. Like, I don't know that. Okay, tell me how we're going to do it. How much money do you need? Can we do it off the side of our desks? Can you do it in the evening? And who in the company can you recruit to work on this from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m.? Because we're not hiring four more people to do this, right? And so that's your job. If you, if you want to get ahead, what are you going to do above and beyond your day tasks? Um, so that would be the second thing. And, you know, the other thing, it sort of seems trite, but, you know, um, the impossible happens every day. And, and people have done things that are far more impossible, you know, than your ideas. You know, Walt Disney is a huge inspiration of mine. And, you know, I worked at Disney Imagineering when I was a kid. And every time I watch an old tape of Walt talking, I think to myself, he built Disneyland without cell phones and without computers, okay? I, I guess with paper memos, I mean, I, I don't even know how... <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, if you said to me today, John, go build Disneyland, I mean, I'm not sure that I could. He did it with no modern technology, right? I mean, they put a man on the moon with less computing power than, than in a Casio calculator wristwatch, right? Like, so people did, you know, Elon Musk, you know, I, I was just talking to Jason about this from Strayer before he came on, you know? He's got a lot of problems, all right? I'm not saying the guy's a saint, right? <laughs> but the first time I saw the rocket come out of outer space, downward with its tail going downward, and landed on a ro remote control barge, I didn't even know you could land a rocket on its tail. I, I didn't know that that was even something possible. When, when they were talking about how he was talking about reusable rockets, right, I was like, I didn't understand. They were like, the rocket's going to land after it goes up. The first time I saw that, I was like, what just happened, right? Okay, in that context, you guys in this room, somebody wants to start a bagel store and just doesn't think they can figure out how to start a bagel store, right? This guy's landing rockets on their tails. Now, he's a lot <laughs> smarter than all of us, right? But if he can do that, you can start your bagel store, right? That's kind of how I think about it. You know, my board... My board was saying to me yesterday, my board meeting, they're like, you're trying to do too much. I'm like, Bob Iger is doing a lot more than me running Disney, and I don't think he's that much smarter than me. So, you know, people will always try to tell you, you can't, you can't, you can't. Um, you know, the other kind of truism I did like for a while, I haven't used in a while, is every good idea I've ever had started out with everybody telling me it was a bad idea. Now, some of the bad ideas, like the Segway, stayed a bad idea. But some of the bad ideas, everybody came around to. When I started this company, one person wanted to invest in it. Nobody wanted to invest in it. Everybody thought it was a bad idea. Everybody thought it was a joke. And then every day, a, a few fewer people thought it was a joke. And then we were inundated with people wanting to invest. And now we have an unlimited access to capital. Now, the nice part about this is that you got to have a long memory in this stuff. And I've had a lot of ups and downs in my career. And, you know, the people that love you when you need the love, that's real. When you're on top, everybody loves you. And you have to know that that's bullshit because the minute you suffer your first setback, none of those people answer the phone, right? And so I've made that really core to, to, to my being too, which is the people that were there in the beginning are my real friends. The Johnny-come-latelys are Johnny-come-latelys, and you need to know who's going to be there when you suffer your next setback. And you know what? You're always going to – you know this. You're always going to suffer your next, next setback. It, it, it's like a market correction. Like, it's inevitable all your friends are going to leave you, right? So <laughs> the question is, you know, who, who, who's going to be there? So – Great question, also in the context of also building your team then. So when it comes to actually hiring people, have you gotten it down to a pretty good formula for who would be great to hire for an innovative company? No, but I, but I have figured out how to treat the people that are with us. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that the people you come to the dance with, you stay with. I don't layer people. I don't layer people. 
we do fire people, but I don't layer people. If you built it and it's going well, you get to run it. There's no, there's no one better coming along, you know? There's no one better than Daniel coming along to run distribution. No one. No matter how old or how rich or how successful, you know, Smithers is at big company X, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He would say he could do it and that Daniel's inexperienced and he should report to him. But he's so fucking wrong, right? Because he, he's been sitting in a wood-paneled office for 10 years, right? So that's my first thought on it, right? You have to have loyalty, and there is no swapping out the team to be done. I really believe that. Every startup that goes through this exercise where it's like, now's the time that we upgrade the team, right? We fire everybody. We fight with everybody. We swap everybody out. We go and get professional executives. Um, it doesn't work. So if you can't do it with the team that you have on the field, um, you're not going to be able to do it. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't augment and you don't bring people in. Now, the other thing people need to have, those people that stay on the field, is they need to understand that if the company is not successful, no matter how high their stature is, it doesn't matter. So we're not going to layer Daniel and bring in another head of distribution, but could we choose to bring in uh, a director of M&A, okay, who's going to do X, Y, and Z. And the impulse that a lot of people are going to have on our team, Eric, who's my president and COO, has been with me from day one, Melissa, who runs Revenue, Daniel. The first impulse is, this, this, this man or woman seems pretty good. What's this going to do to me? Is this going to diminish me? Is this going to do this? And then they have to get comfortable with the fact, which, which, which does it make my stock more valuable? Does it make the company more valuable? Do we have a better chance of success if we bring in this additional player onto the team? And in some cases, you get it right. And in some cases, you don't. In some cases, those later hires are failures, which is why you can't trade your people out. You can supplement the team, but you can't tell the first baseman that he's now going to the outfield. Like, that, that doesn't work. But you do bring in a shortstop. And actually, you know, it's funny that I'm using sports analogies. Where's the shortstop? Is he between second and third or first and second? Second and third. Okay. So the second and third baseman need to understand they're still the second and third baseman, but we're going to play a better game if we stick a person in at the shortstop position. That's really a good analogy. I think I'll use that. Like, like you know, like... They need to be comfortable with that. Got it. Got it. You mentioned about you know Walt Disney building everything uh, you know without email and internet and yeah, all that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, and obviously, trends in work itself, like it's, those technologies, have transformed how we work. The amount of remote work that happens now, the kind of collaboration. I don't believe in remote work generally, but go on. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say so. Uh, I don't believe in work from home. So looking ahead with yeah. these kinds of trends, uh, how are things changing with today's, like the more millennial workforce and not just like in a year, but five, 10 years from now, how do you think like this building innovative teams and managing teams, what will always stay the same at the core and what do you think is fundamentally going to change in the near future? Well, you know, I don't think the whole, I don't think the situation with, to give you a specific answer is, I don't think the situation with email is sustainable. Like, I don't think that, um, I think that will be radically different. I don't think we'll get just an endless stream of messages all day long, like the way that it is now. I think that will change dramatically over the next five years. And, you know, Slack is really no better. But I would have to think that it will get easier because it's such a big pain point for everybody. Um, and look, you know, I think that I don't want to sound like, um, you know, like an old cruster, but the face-to-face -face stuff is really powerful. It's funny, Daniel, the lesson I said to Hannah today, which is, you know, we went, we, we got on the train at eight o'clock in the morning. We went to Comcast in Philly. We had an hour and a half meeting, which was good and productive. I mean, it wasn't, you know, knock your socks off productive, but it was a solid meeting. We got back on the train and we all walked into the office at one o'clock. And I, I said, you know, Hannah, Hannah's a new member of Daniel's team. It's her first job out of college. I said, that was a good use of our time. They're one of our most important partners. You could feel like, oh, I dragged my ass all the way to Philadelphia 
for an hour and a half meeting. But that's what it takes. We, we met with them. We went through it. We looked at it on uniform pages. We talked out the issues. They know us. We know them. You achieve it in a way that video conferencing never really did despite all the promises. You know, I got, a, I got on a plane and flew to Orlando, to Fort Lauderdale a week back. The plane was two hours delayed. Um, I got to the meeting. I did the one-hour meeting with our great partner, Trade Station, who I love. And then I went back to the airport, got on the plane, and came home. It's really important. It's really valuable. It's a really good use of time. Now, you know, it's funny. Now I'll get all political with you. It, it's the state of the infrastructure in this country is a problem because it, there are a host of things which are harder now than when I was a child. Air travel is much harder now. So while the value of face-to-face -face is so important, you can't fly anywhere anymore. You know, nothing works. Every plane is fucked up, right? Every airport has a problem. You know, so it, now it's like, I, this is more important than ever, but I know every time I go to travel somewhere, there's a 50-50 chance I get there, right? So like, that's kind of like, I don't know the answer. The other thing is, phone calls, I believe, are more important than ever. You know what the one thing you can't do with your phone anymore? Is make a phone call anywhere in the United States. You can never get a phone signal. Which is, when I got my first phone for like emergency purposes that I kept in the car and I paid 55 cents a minute in 1997, I remember, I think it was like 55 cents a minute and then in some cases it was 65 cents a minute. I remember thinking that was like a lot of money. Um, every time I made a phone call with my cell phone in 1997, I got through and the signal was perfect. Now you can't make phone calls anymore. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there is a lot of bad reception, I agree. I agree. No, it's not, it's, not, it's not that there's a lot of bad reception. It's you can't make phone calls anywhere in the United States. There's not an office building. There's not a street corner. You can never make a phone call anymore. So you're a big believer in face-to-face. -face. You're a big believer in like talking. Well, I tell, out. I mean, I do tell people that a lot. I'm like, did you, did you talk to HP about this, this, uh, this question we have? Well, I sent an email. So you didn't talk to them. Pick up the fucking phone. I mean, you know, it's just like every phone call resolves. Then the Slack. Then, you know, Daniel and Eric are fighting on Slack for like 40 minutes at 10 o'clock at night. Pick up the fucking phone. Like, it just, it's, it, it, the, the situation is diffused and worked out in two minutes versus 40 minutes of Slack. Like, it's, people are, people are so bizarre, you know? I mean, and believe me, I'm responsible for my own host of bizarre problem-causing behaviors, right? But like that happens to not be one of them. Got it. So you're all about you know doing business together, face to face, or talking it out. Kind of, you don't think that technology is going to like fundamentally keep changing it? I I think it'll. Pro I don't know. Okay. I just I'll just stick with my rant. All right. Uh, yeah. This is great. Have a lot more thoughts, but I want to open it up to the audience and uh, get lots of questions in. So let's start with you over here. Go right ahead, Harlan. Go ahead. Oh, there's. A, do we have a microphone? All right. We've got several microphones coming your way. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for sharing your story. Yeah. Um, going way back to the beginning of the conversation, you said something about setting your sights on like the next peak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering if you had any advice to share on how you see that process. Well, I like that analogy. And Ken Lair, who was the, uh, the chairman of BuzzFeed, used to use that too, which is in the, the way the expression goes, and I don't know if he read it somewhere, was if you look at the top of the mountain, it's too high. And if you think about each consecutive peak, get to one peak, you set a goal, then you get to the next peak. Um, it becomes attainable. And it's like hiking up a mountain or it's like any physical exercise. If you, if you just set reasonable goals and at the next one you make your next goal, it works out really well. Thank you. Next question. Let's go right back there. If you were going to recommend a book that helped shape your mentality on innovation, what would that be? Well, there's a few that I really like, um, and I like the historical stories of industries that are similar to ours. So for us, you know, when I read the book about the founding of ESPN, those guys have all the fun. I really liked I found a lot that I like. You, you read that, sir? The one in front of you read that? Okay. I like that book. I like the book about John Malone called Cable Cowboy, and we've recommended a bunch of these are actually in the Strayer course. Um, we use the book uh, Grit 
by Angela Duckworth, which has probably been the most influential, a lot of nods, probably been the most influential book on the topic, the idea that perseverance and persistence outranks intelligence in almost every possible um, scoring of productivity. And I'll tell you a new book. So this guy, Scott Belsky, um, who's a board member of ours, is chief product officer of Adobe. Jordan, do we know, remember what the name of his book is? Daniel? Scott Belsky is his last name. He just wrote a new book. I think it gets released in a week. The Messy Middle. The Messy Middle is Scott's new book. Um, and I think that's become my new favorite. I love Scott, disclosure, if, if you need to have a disclosure about loving somebody. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I don't get a cut of the books. Um, and it's about the messy middle, that, that most startup stories are told about the beginning and the end, and they leave out the part in the middle. So the messy middle, I think, is a great book as well, too. Thank you. Yeah, these, these ladies. Yeah, let's, let's get a microphone up here, please. So I am about to walk on to a fully 100% remote team. Companies based in Seattle, I'm based here in New York. All of the PMs and CMs are based across the country. I'd like to hear more about your position on remote work, why, what's for it, yeah. what's against it, and what that looks like. You know, I, it kind of goes back to um, the idea that I think that, that so much, you know, the, the time is so against you when you're doing one of these businesses that every day the balance in the bank goes lower. Um, and so it's a fight against time. And so many issues and conflicts and ideas are resolved quickly with a huddle, wrapping somebody in the hallway. Well, often people say, well, I'm going to schedule a meeting. Schedule a meeting where not that many people grab them in the hallway and say, let's just figure it out. Most times you don't need a meeting, right? And so it's better. It's just better for us. It's, and especially in a newsroom where we're doing eight hours a day on each of the networks live, it helps a lot. Now, the exception being is, uh, if somebody is so great um, that you make the compromise. Actually, Daniel's a good example. Daniel works in L.A. When Daniel started in L.A., he was one person, and now the L.A. office, we have a whole studio there, and there's, what, eight people there, nine people? Yeah. Okay. And um, that works really well. I think the one thing that we did do there is he was in a WeWork. He was in a, an office location from day one. And I think that homework especially given how cheap. If you're going to invest in a person that's going to be a remote worker, I think it, you know most of these, in my situation, we, we, we would seldom do that with a person who's not earning $50,000 plus, probably closer to $70,000. In that context, $500 a month for a WeWork, we should do that, right? And I think that that makes a big difference. It doesn't solve quite all the problems I laid out. It actually doesn't solve any of the problems I laid out. But at least this person's in a professional work environment, and they're not, they're not at home, and like the line between like laying on the couch and doing work becomes a little bit gray, right? So, uh, and the funny thing is, I kind of know it from myself too, which is like, you know, if on a Friday during the summer, I decide I want to like work for my beach house or something like that. Like I work, I do a lot of phone calls, and then. I also like fuck around a little bit, you know, and it's like, you know, and then suddenly it's like, you know, suddenly it's like, well, maybe I'll try to install that new hose now that I got, you know, like, you know, like, like, and, and, you know, it's funny, you know, I happened on the last Friday, okay? I've never been stung by a bee, okay? How many, raise your hand if you've been stung by a bee, okay? All right. I always thought that people who said bee stings were really painful were kind of making it up. I kind of thought always that the bee stung you and it was like a pinprick. Like, that's what I thought a bee sting was. So my wife says to me, we have this horrible hornet's nest in the backyard, right? And, and she's like, we should call an exterminator. I'm like, why would we call an exterminator? We have Amazon. I'm going to order the hornet's nest. Destroyer. Destroyer. <laughs> you know, why would I? Exterminator's going to, what's an exterminator cost? 200 bucks, you know, $8, a can of Raid for Hornets, right? <laughs> so I got that, and I got this, like, yellow device that you put this liquid in and um, that they go into, that they're attracted to this liquid. Has anyone, has anyone tried to take down a hornet's nest, okay? <laughs> so then I got this. These were actually, they actually weren't hornets. They were, they were carpenter bees. Do you know what a carpenter bee is? Has anyone here ever had carpenter bees? Bees are an amazing animal. There's underground bees. These bees live underground in a hole, okay? 
So I went and I got the carpenter bee stuff, which is like this foam that you have to spray into this hole, okay? Bees get angry. Like they, like they, like, like, like I didn't, like I, I also thought that was a lie. I'm like, they're insects. How, how would they know to be angry? Like don't they, and also if they're not like threatened, why would they attack, right? The minute I started spraying this foam, they figured it out immediately, right? And they stung the shit out of my left hand, right? <laughs> it was so painful. And the reason why is they inject venom, I guess, into your hand. So it's not even like they sting you. Then your hand hurts for like three days, right? So moral of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Don't work remote. I think because <laughs> that's what you learned. Were you supposed to be at work while I was? So, so, I, so I was doing this on Friday. Oh, uh, you were working while I was supposed to be working from home. I had this bee incident go on, you know. And but I think the other moral of the story is that I I just didn't I didn't I never believed it. Like I had to see it for myself that these things really hurt. Right. The other thing is that my eight-year-old son got stung by a bee and was really upset about it for like three days. And I was like, Cooper, stop complaining. You got stung by that bee a day ago. How much could it hurt? And my wife just kept arguing with me about bee stings. I think like if you're in an office environment and you're around other people and you see things happen, it's the opposite of, of, of me not believing bee stings hurt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now your colleagues will know what you're up to okay. when you tell them you're working with. <laughs> right here. Right here. No, you're right here. Go, go right ahead. Oh. Wait one sec for okay. the oh. mic here. Yeah. Um, so what if you come in, not at the beginning of a startup, but kind of like maybe at the year mark or the year and a half mark, and it's you've, you've been come, you came in to be kind of an innovator, but the people around you aren't relatively innovative. Are you kind of wasting your time in this particular place, or should you bear with the people and try to get them on board with your mission? I take it this is a, a purely hypothetical <laughs> question. Um, you know, I, here, here's, the, here's the thing. So this guy that, that tried to quit on me today, and he, he didn't quit, he's staying. Um, he said to me, I brought in this, this, uh, this new project, this great idea, and this, this special thing that we're going to do with Apple. And it's been like two days, and it hasn't happened, and therefore I don't have sway in the organization, and people aren't listening to me, right? And I said to him, I have to ask for things 10 times to happen around here, just because there's a lot of priorities, and you got to keep pushing on stuff, and that's just the way that it is. And, you know, my dad is fond of saying, it's called work for a reason, right? Um, and so you got to ask yourself, are the people not innovative? Is it a bad company? And I've left plenty of companies after a year or less, and maybe it is, and maybe these people, you know, are not good people, right? Or maybe it's just that part of your challenge is you need to push these things through and keep at it and figure out how you bob and you weave. And that's really the difference, but nothing is easy. Let's go back there, please. Why is it worth um, pursuing an MBA if you are an entrepreneur? Well. I think that our program is different. I mean, obviously, I think it's different because I've invested a lot of time and work in it. We all have. I think that it's directly applicable. And what we're doing is not pie in the sky. It's like, look, look, if you found any of this interesting, like, this is what we do with a lot more rigor. And we've got faculty like Jordan and Jason who are involved in it. And we've got curriculum and we've got TAs and this kind of like fun storytelling stuff is backed up by books and projects and assignments and quantitative work and qualitative work and it'll help you. I think it'll help you, you know, and um, that's a lot different, I think, than going to, um, you know, I went and got my MBA at Columbia, right? Um, the accounting was really valuable. The accounting courses, I love accounting. We put a lot of accounting into our into our uh, entrepreneurship MBA because I feel like it's unbelievably important for entrepreneurs. Uh, all of the valuation models that we did and all the finance stuff that we did for bankers because a lot of people that go to Columbia Business School want to be bankers was a big waste of my time, you know? And I didn't like it and I didn't learn it and none of it's even real, you know? Um, so I don't think getting a traditional uh, MBA 
makes sense. I think ours does. Um, obviously, I think it does. To be honest, I've got a lot of questions about traditional university education. Um, and, you know, Carl McDonald, who's the CEO of Strayer, talks about this a lot. I believe that my children, there's a good shot that my children will not go to a traditional university. I would be very happy if they didn't. I would be very happy if my children have a passion for a particular field of study and they want to learn online and they want to have a portion of that be offline as well too and it's going to allow them to achieve their dreams. I don't think, and, and, and maybe they're self-directed. I mean, there was a lot of, when I went to Princeton undergrad, there was a lot of people that embraced a liberal arts education and loved it and did the reading and did the English and did the math. And there was a lot of people that didn't. And it was just a waste of time for those people. I, I think if, and, and, I, and the reason why I use my children is it'll be totally changed by the time they get there. And then the question is what happens to the people in the middle? And if you say, hey, you know what? I want to go to a traditional educational institution and I love English and I love the classics and that's my passion and I want to study that for four years. Or I love a traditional MBA and I want to be the best Wall Street analyst on earth and I want to go to Columbia and do that then you know, I'm a big believer. People should do what they want to do. But there's no shoulds and musts in life. And if you say, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to build businesses, I also love English literature, and to, to do English literature, I'm going to take a class on Linda, or I'm going to find an online group, or I'm going to audit a class here to do that, and I'm going to be where I want to be as an entrepreneur by doing the, um, the, Strayer, the Strayer MBA, then you assemble what you want. But nothing gets you anything anymore. I mean, to me, I, I, think, I think that really I was the last generation where you went to an Ivy League school and they just handed you whatever job you wanted, right? I'm 41 years old. That was the deal. You go to Princeton, you pay a fuck ton of money, and when you get out, you get whatever job you want. And that was actually fading a little bit in 99 when I graduated. Now, I don't know where anyone who works with, for me went to school. I don't know where any of them went to school. It's not relevant. I'm sure they told me at one point. I kind of forget. Sometimes it comes up. Daniel went to some school in California. I don't know which one. It's utterly irrelevant to anything that he does. Um, there you have it. Well, what's the structure of the course? Is it uh, how many weeks? How much time investment? So it's a full. It's a full MBA. Uh, you can do one to two courses at a time. Most people do one to two courses at a time. Uh, we have seven courses now. We're adding the courses on an ongoing basis so that you can, you can on your timeline, no one can go faster than the courses will be made available. And it takes two years at the average clip. Is that right, Jordan and Jason? Two years is what we, a little more? Yeah. 12 courses. Yeah. But most people do two, it's two years for the average student. Yeah. Got it. Great. I'm going to do one more question from the audience. Let's go right there, please. The white shirt. And by the way, you know, the Strayer folks, just you know, hop up a little bit, and Jordan, hop up a little bit, just so that they can identify your faces. Everyone, I'll be around. Ask these folks around. These guys have been my partners now for years. Um, yeah, and we're definitely going to include a link to the course as well for anyone who's interested. And sounds like a really valuable way to learn. So I appreciate that. Hey, um, I had a question regarding um, retention of employees. So as Cheddar grows larger. How are you evolving your total rewards offerings to employees to keep your key talent or high performers being poached away from larger tech? You know, benefits is a very interesting question. And so first of all, I think we have excellent health insurance. It's funny, we were just, you know, we, when we talk about these things, you know, uh, and some of our senior executives felt that our mental health benefit um, that the insurance company offers was not particularly good. And then we're going to look to supplement that, right? But I think we've got great health insurance. My family is on it. Uh, we're very happy. How did it go with the baby with the health insurance? Pretty good, right? Uh, Daniel, Daniel just had a baby. Well, very healthy, but you know, babies are expensive. Um, so we think about stuff like that. We think about the work outings. We did, uh, went to a baseball game this summer. We also went to kick axe, which I actually think was a big mistake. Yeah, uh, I think it was not safe. And had I known about it before, no one got hurt. It was awesome. No one got hurt, but the axes ricochet like seven feet. And so what is I that, think axe that throwing? it's axe throwing. It, we should not have we should not have taken the company to kick axe. Okay. Are you the target? Or? Uh, no, but you know, it's so funny. Our chief operating officer went out the next morning with one of his colleagues, chief operating officers at another company, and the guy said to him, Oh my God, that's so dangerous. 
What's, we would never have taken our employees to that. And then Eric said, I'm so glad that he said that the day after we did it because um, so you know, there's a fun stuff. Now, let me give you an example of a benefit that I don't think is worth it. Matching 401k, I think, is a mistake. Yeah, it's a big mistake. <laughs> Look, you don't have to agree with everything I say. You know, I mean, go run your own companies. Uh, we do 401k. Here's the problem with matching 401k. That's real money. And you know what? You, the, you're excited for about 10 minutes, and then you have forgotten that we're giving you that money. And you think, well, it's not real money. It's not in my pocket. I'm going to get it when I'm 65. You, you forget that we're giving you the match. I think we're better off just giving you that as salary, right? My favorite example that I give at BuzzFeed, we did BuzzFeed. I think we did matching 401k. I think I have the story right on this. We also did free sodas. People were happy about the free sodas every day of their life. People were happy about the free sodas. No one remembered the 401k after the first day we did it. So for it to be a benefit, you have to feel a benefit. You know, I don't believe that businesses are nanny states. We don't have to do things for you that are good for you out of some paternalistic nature that you don't appreciate, right? So what I actually said to the employees is, because this came up in all hands, I said, you know what? We have 160 employees. If I got a petition from 80 people here saying that they wanted matching 401k as opposed to routine raises done on an annual basis, or even just some kind of petition saying what everybody wanted for matching 401k, we'd look at it. You know what? I didn't get the petition. So obviously people didn't care that much. Seems like a weird note to end on. Uh, but <laughs> so yeah. before, we wrap up, before we wrap up, so uh, before I want to ask you a concluding question. Before we do that, I'd love everyone to just kind of like turn around and make eye contact with someone you haven't met yet and remember that person so that you can talk to them right after we're done. So just identify someone you haven't spoken to. Just wink or wave. Okay. So when we get up from here, what's up? Oh, one more question? Okay, one moment. When we get up, uh, I want you to grab that person, introduce yourself, and then also just share with them two things, very simple. One, what was your key takeaway from tonight? What like resonated most with you? And then what's the one thing you might do differently tomorrow? Okay, so as John was saying, this face-to-face -face thing is really, really important, and this is a great opportunity for you to spark a new thought and like kind of crystallize some of your learnings from tonight. And we will be uh, heading out to the bar, so you can do that over drinks right outside. Or the bar that's right out there. Um, is there a burning question back there? It's actually, um, I, I wanted to comment on one of the questions earlier about why getting an MBA when you're focused on being an entrepreneur. And I'm a student in John's class. Oh, so, thank you. So I actually wanted to kind of share a little bit because I understand that there's there could be um, this, this burning question of, well, why be credentialed with an MBA when I'm going to start my own business? Like, who actually really cares about that if I'm going to be, you know, trudging it in the trenches by myself, so to speak? And having, um, being an active student of John's, I really wanted to speak to that very personally. Um, I'm enrolled in his program not because I aspire necessarily to get an MBA. I'm enrolled in his program because I am an aspiring entrepreneur and in my life, although I'm surrounded by amazing people, I don't have people in my life that have the, the knowledge and the skills to start a business. You know, my father is a civil engineer. He's not an entrepreneur. Um, and so to be able to be in this program and, you know, take these ideas, as John said, that are, are worth shit, unless I actually do something with them and to be able to, to, to take them off the shelf and to lay them out in front and use John um, and these amazing, you know, books and skills each week and these foundations to build and build and build, I can decide whether or not these ideas actually have legs and muster. And so I can do it in a very controlled environment that is actually kind of risk-free. And it's allowing me to be able to potentially discover this amazing part of myself that I never knew before in, in, again, a very kind of controlled environment. And so I thought the question was really fantastic. And it's it's really less necessarily about taking 12 courses and being credentialed, but really more about this kind of institutional knowledge that he has that he's paying for to us. So I, I appreciate you allowing me to go one past and, and sharing my experience. All right. Thank well, you so much. Thank you. It means the world. Thank you so much.
Amazing, yeah, and that just uh, maybe building on that, um, in addition to checking out your course, um, if you were to give the audience here one last call to action, like maybe a piece of advice that you really believe will serve them well in their endeavors, what would that be? Just get, get excited about something new every day. I mean, that's the, you know, I mean, the, the, the B story was ridiculous, I realize that. But, you know, I, 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 I also think that there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of great stuff. I mean, the world is, you know, look, this is, it's a tough world right now, right? we got a lot of bad, crazy stuff going on. Um, but there's interesting things to be inspired about every day that don't cost money. Um, and so be excited about stuff. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people in the world that aren't excited about new stuff. And those people don't have the opportunity that all you guys do because you're all here on a Thursday night at 8 o'clock and you've chosen to be part of this and you've chosen to be here. And you know what? You could have been watching Netflix or you could have been at a bar, although you should you get to go to the bar afterwards. But, like, you know, so lean into that because that's something really special that, that, that everyone in this room has. So thank you for coming. You made it nice to have all your questions were great. And it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, John. You were fantastic. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.